listen to God's word. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward Negev. Now there was famine, a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, Now I know what a beautiful woman you are. Not only the father of our faith, but a very smart man. I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you're my sister. Okay, maybe he's not so smart. Say you're my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarah was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said, why why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev which his, with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word and open our hearts to conformity to his truth. The epic of faith, the faith of Abraham, is about movement It's about separation, it's about obedience in fits and starts, it's about compromise, and it's a lot about communication. There are times where God is speaking to Abram and Abram is speaking back, and unfortunately there are times when Abram severs communication with God. All the lines are severed. Now if you remember, it all began with a call. 
where God extended a call to Abram. Abram, we, we learned last week, was minding his own business, living in Ur of the Chaldeans. He was hanging out with his dad, his wife, his nephew Lot, and his brothers. And God came to him, and for the first time, the first time he ever encountered God or knew anything about him, God spoke and said, hey, Abram, here's, here, here's what I want you to do. I want you to leave your country, I want you to leave your people, and I want you to leave your family. He was graced with an invitation to leave his life behind and follow God to change the world. Now, in those days, there were no one true God worshipers. There were just superstitious pagans. Abram was among them. He was a moon-worshiping pagan. But God told Abram to separate himself from his country, his people, and even his family and go to the land that God would show him. Now, what we're going to find as we go through the story of Abraham is that separation is a major theme. It was an indispensable part of Abraham becoming the father of our faith and the friend of God, the only person in Scripture described that way. God set the tone for this separation by telling him, leave your people, leave your place, and leave your family. And as we learned last week, Abraham, Abram obeyed, sort of, right? Because he separated himself from his place. He separated himself from the people, but not his folk. He kept them with him despite what God told him. Every living member of his family went with Abram to go to the place God was showing him. Now, we also found out that they only made it about halfway. They came to a place called Haran, and the scripture says they settled there. Abram settled short of God's vision for his life. Why? Because he settled short of full adherence to what God was calling him to do. He stayed in that place, Haran, until devastating circumstances pried his heart open and freed him from the ties that bound him to disobedience. Now, I think it's important to just to pause and think for a moment. Are you free to obey God? Or do you need to be pride free of what binds you? Abraham was pride free because of the devastating death of his father, Terah. His change of circumstances reopened lines of communication between Abram and God, and God stepped in right there in Haran, halfway where he was supposed to be, and he told him one more time again, get moving, there's a land I want to show you. Now there is a lesson here that we need to learn about obedience and communication with God. As it relates to obedience, we can let circumstances dictate our obedience. Or we can choose obedience despite our circumstances. And that's an important thing to recognize. And you need to recognize where you are. Do circumstances 
have to be right for you to obey? Or do you obey despite your circumstances? Abram's circumstances were controlling him, and he delayed obedience. Now, one undeniable result of his delayed obedience is that communication between Abram and God silence. It ceased. Now, what we're going to learn about Abraham is this would be a pattern. Okay, but when his, when his circumstances changed with the devastating death of his father, he was open to God again. That's what happens when things go south on us. We, we turn toward God. We should turn toward God. And that's what Abraham did. And God actually showed up right there in Haram with a message. Do you know what the message was? It was the same message that he had given Abraham when he was in Ur of the Chaldeans, which was, leave your people, leave your place, leave your family behind, and go to the land I will show you. Now, why did God show up and say the same thing? Why would he just repeat himself? Because that's the way it works with God. He tells us what we need to know. He shows us what we need to do to get going. And the message doesn't change until we go. Jesus talked about this. He spoke to the principal when he said, if you're faithful with a little, the little bit you've heard, the little bit you've been instructed, the little bit you know, if you're faithful with a little, you'll be entrusted with more. The implication is that if you don't respond by faith to what God is calling you to do, then you're going to get no more. You have to be a good steward of the word God has entrusted you with, and then on the other side of of a demonstration of obedience, God will lead you further. He will give you more. When he was ready to obey, he had been freed from his circumstances. God spoke again, reiterating exactly what he told him the first time. The objective of his separation was to get to the land that God was showing him. And Abram finally went just as God told him to go. So what happens in the story is he makes his way to Canaan land. Specifically, he goes to the great tree of Moriah in Shechem. And guess what happened? Having done his part... God showed up and spoke again. This time he changed the message. This time he was revealing the reward for Abram's obedience. Look at Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abram. This is the third time written about in Scripture. The first two, he said, hey, go to the land I will show you. This time the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land... So what did Abram do? He built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now, did you notice the change? It's subtle, but it's an important transition. Up to this point, God had only pledged himself to show Abram the land. But after Abram demonstrated obedience, that the land was something worth seeing, 
By the way, he demonstrated obedience through separation, separating from his people, separating from his land, getting where God told him to do. And so it was obedience through separation and movement. After that, God gives him something more, something new. He gives him a promise. No longer is it a land I will show you. Now, he says, this is a land I will give you. And that is also the way it works. God shows us what could be. And then as we obey, as we follow him, he delivers Now, how did Abraham respond to God's promise? In that moment, he built an altar. Now, this also happens throughout the story. Anytime Abraham pitches a tent in the land where he's supposed to be, he builds an altar. And in this case, Abraham built an altar after God spoke. It indicated communication between God and Abraham. Now, this is an important question. If if Abraham built the altar in celebration that God spoke to him, what was Abraham or Abram saying to God through the altar? The sacrifices offered on that altar symbolized Abram's intent to deny himself and to surrender. To surrender to God's will. Now we, we sang about it over and over and over again today. How we surrender. We surrender all. It's easier to sing than do. What Abram was saying to God as he built that altar was, I surrender, I'm going to deny myself. In the words of the New Testament, take up my cross and follow you. It's an important response to God's call. Now the question is, are you surrendered? The altar said, I'm going to deny myself and surrender to the word and the will of God. Now, from Shechem at the tree of Morah, Abram then traveled down near Bethel. As a matter of fact, he was in the valley between Bethel and Ai. It was another part of the land that God was giving him. And what happened there? He pitched a tent and he built an altar. Again, yes. One more time he moved and said, I'm declaring my allegiance and dependence upon God. I am expressing my gratitude to God for his goodness and... I'm declaring my intent to obey. I surrender. He was where God called him to go, and he was saying to God, I'm all in. Now listen, at this point, things were great between Abram and God. Okay, the the communication was strong. The circumstances were favorable. Abraham's shepherding business was booming. His flocks and his household were expanding. His influence was expanding. He and God were on really good terms and were developing that friendship that is celebrated throughout Scripture. But at this point, when things are going so good, Abraham makes a curious choice. 
for reasons we don't know and can't really understand, he left that valley between Bethel and Ai and headed south to the Negev, which, and scholars debate this, if it is not on the outside of the boundary of the land God promised, it is at least on the outskirts. So he's, he leaves earth, he gets to Iran, settles there. God says, all right, let's go. He follows God to exactly the place God is giving him. He moves twice to see the land that God has promised to he and his descendants. And then he goes again. This time, right up to the edge or over the edge of where God has called him. It's a curious choice. And there are two noteworthy things about what happens there in the Negev. First, there is no mention of altar building. No communication. Which I think is an indicator that Abraham knew he had gone too far. Because isn't that what happens? We choose to go a little bit too far and then we shut God out or perhaps down. So there's no communication. He builds no altar. He does not pledge surrender. Second thing that's noteworthy is his circumstances immediately change. Rather than favorable conditions for flourishing, the weather actually turns on him and it produces a severe famine. Now, we, we don't and can't know if the change of circumstances had anything to do with Abraham striking out on his own, but what we do know is that those changes pushed Abraham to the brink. His flocks, his herd, and his entire household were threatened with starvation. Now, at this point, we would expect that the father of our faith and a friend of God would respond to, to this, tr these tragic circumstances by confessing the error of his ways, building an altar, and saying, God, you called me. I might have gotten mixed up a little bit here, but what do we do? Give me wisdom. Show me where to go, how to respond. But there's none of that. Nothing like that happens here. Why? Well, it appears that Abraham decided to do what Matt talked about earlier. He decided he, he, he was going to figure it out for himself. Okay? Maybe he thought, hey, I got myself into this deal wandering around, and maybe he was too proud to ask God for help, or maybe he thought that when God promised that he would bless him, that he would bless all of his decisions, even if they weren't decisions that were in keeping with God's will because God's hand of blessing was on him. I'm not exactly sure what he was thinking, but here's what I know. It's clear that Abraham decided on his own 
leaning into his own understanding, he decided that he was going to get himself out of that mess of his own making. When we are in a difficult spot, it's always true, one of two things happen. Our circumstances cloud our view of God like the fog blocks the splendor of the sun, or we choose to view our difficulties through the lens of faith in God. When our circumstances cloud our view of God, every time fear and sometimes even panic sets in. Now, Abraham was clearly gripped by fear because of the famine, and and like a drowning man who lunges for the first piece of driftwood that comes along, he grabbed hold of the first means of deliverance that presented itself. What did he do? Without turning to God for wisdom, without turning to his protector for provision, Abraham, by the way, along with the rest of the world that he was supposed to separate from, along with all the other shepherds around him, Abraham decided that he was going to head south to Egypt. Now, if the Negev was on the outskirts of where he was supposed to be, Egypt wasn't anywhere close. Egypt was not the land that God had called him to. It certainly wasn't the land he was giving him. But with the glory of God clouded by his circumstances, Abram was convinced himself that he had no choice. He took matters into his own hands, and in an attempt to save himself, he went further away from where God called him to go. For Abraham, Egypt looked like a lifeline. Egypt represented hope and salvation. Now, we sang today about what is our hope and salvation. It's God. For the father of our faith and a friend of God, it was Egypt. Now, it is no coincidence that throughout the Scripture, Egypt stands for alliance with the world and dependence upon the flesh. Egypt stands for alliance with the world and dependence upon the flesh. Through Isaiah, God warned of setting our sights on Egypt. Look at Isaiah 31.1. Now remember, he's speaking to the people, the children of Abraham. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from God. Egypt came to symbolize man's efforts to save himself. Now, by the way, you're thinking, wait a minute, was that all the time? Because we do know that at the end of the book of Genesis, in chapter 46, I believe, uh, God actually tells Jacob, who he also called Israel, to go to Egypt. Not to, he says, do not fear, like they knew it was wrong. 
go to Egypt and there be reunited with your son Joseph, who's going to provide for you, by the way, in famine. Okay, so another instance of famine, and in this case, God leads Jacob to take his family to Egypt, and God actually says there, I will make your name great, your family will grow, but I'm going to bring you back. And then in the early days of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 2, we remember God instructing Joseph to take Mary and baby Jesus to Egypt to protect the child from the deranged, murderous King Herod. So there are times where the Spirit of God leads us not to separate from the world around us, but to engage in it. Where we let our light shine for His glory. God was going to be glorified by what He did for Israel, bringing them out of Egypt. God was certainly going to be glorified by protecting baby Jesus. But Abraham got no such instruction. What Abraham was supposed to do was stay where God told him to be. But instead, he decided he had a plan to save his life. Rather than separate from the other shepherds who were all chasing green grass in Egypt, Abraham joined them without ever consulting God. No altars, no surrender. Now, how do we know he didn't consult God? Remember, whenever Abraham heard from God or sought God, he built an altar of surrender and self-denial. He always did that. Now, there is no mention of altar building after he gets to the Negev. There's certainly no mention of altar building in Egypt. And it's clear that he abandoned any thought of self-sacrifice because of what happened. Do you remember? Like, it's, it's crazy. Look at Genesis 12, beginning in verse 11. As he was about to enter Egypt... He said to his wife, Sarai, I, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but let you live. So say you're my sister. Say you're my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. What? There's nothing sacrificial about this. Unless, of course, you count Abram's willingness to sacrifice Sarai to save his own skin. There's nothing noble about this. He lied, and he told his wife to go along with the lie to protect him. Now, actually, when you understand the culture there, this, this, was, this is pretty slick on Abraham's part for two reasons. In their barbaric world, a foreigner might indeed be killed for his beautiful wife, but on the other hand, a brother was to be respected as a guardian for his sister. 
So there's a measure of protection there. Anyone interested in the sister as a wife would approach the brother and not only ask for permission to be married, but they would have brokered a deal, like the exchange of a dowry. Secondly, the truth is, she was his half-sister. Okay, different moms, same dad. So whatever. So I guess it was only a half lie. Right? She, she was his half-sister. But does that make her his half-wife? She was his whole wife. And no matter how he framed it in his mind or we frame it in ours, he was just trying to save himself. Now, when he was in communication with God, he was surrendering. He was giving of himself for God and others. But at this moment, with no communication with God, there was no surrender and no self-sacrifice. The fact is... He was demanding that Sarah lie, compromise herself for his safety, and then he essentially sold her to Pharaoh for a huge dowry. The scripture says Pharaoh paid him handsomely all kinds of animals and people, camels. Pharaoh paid Abram, father of our faith, friend of God, for his beautiful wife. Now, a long way from where he was supposed to be, doing what he shouldn't be doing, obviously, Abraham was throwing it all away. Predictably, no mention of an altar, no mention of communication with God, no hint of sacrifice. No hint of sacrifice. Was that because he was doing wrong or because he had done wrong? Yes. Foolish decision after foolish decision was stacking up against him, and he was ashamed. Just as Adam and Eve hid in the garden, after their fall. Abram was hiding from God and things were moving from bad to worse. But God still had a plan. He still had a purpose. And he was and is gracious and merciful. And you know what he did? He stepped in and saved Sarai and Abram. You say, well, it was a little bit late, wasn't it? Because it seems like he would have like intercepted her before she got to the palace. 
Well, thankfully for her, there was a custom that after a bride was acquired, she would move into the household for a period of time that would pass where she would be untouched to be sure that she was not pregnant. So she was protected. It was during that small window of time that God sprang into action. Look at verse 17 of Genesis 12. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. Now, Pharaoh, interestingly, he's the only one demonstrating any kind of spiritual sensitivity or faith during this time. He starts adding one and one together, and he's like, whoa, that equals, there's a problem here. And I think it probably has something to do with that new girl. And so he comes to Abram and says, dude, what in the world? She's your wife. Take her back. He sets them free. He instructs his men to let Abram keep the dowry, all the stuff he had been given because of her, and to just get him out of Egypt. Let him go home. And he made it out. He retraced his steps out of Egypt through the Negev. He finally got home freed from the devastating circumstances of his own foolishness. And guess what he did? He did exactly what he should have been doing all along. He built an altar. He turned back to God, reopened the lines of communication. And the scripture says he called on the name of the Lord. And you know what God did? God said, Abram, are you kidding me? There is no chance that we're putting this thing back together. No, that's not what he said because that's not who God is. God reset the whole relationship. And you, you know what's great about that? It's because... Feeling separated from God because of our foolishness is real. Feeling ashamed and hiding in the garden because of sin is real. But all God ever wants is for us to turn back. Just like the prodigal who came home Our Heavenly Father, as we said last week, is waiting. He's just sitting on the porch waiting for us to come home, just like Abraham did, to build the altar, to reestablish communication, to be willing to say, whew, I messed that up. And when we do that, God is always willing to press reset, to reestablish our relationship with him. Why? Because that relationship with him is based upon what he's done, not what we do. It's based upon the grace of God. 
the finished work of Jesus Christ is what establishes the relationship and sustains it. And when we move away from God, we're moving out of the flow of his goodness. But we certainly haven't moved out of his love because nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so wherever you are, whatever you're doing, however far you have moved beyond what God has called you to do, it is never, ever, ever, as long as you have the breath of life, it is never too late to build the altar, to declare your intent, to deny yourself, and surrender. Abraham got back home because God enabled him to come back home. It's a journey of faith. And he called on the name of the Lord. And in God's grace and mercy, he reset the relationship. And they were back on track. Now, what's our takeaway today? First, I think it's really important for us just to acknowledge Egypt is not the answer. Okay, the, remember the symbolism of Egypt? It, it represents our attempts to save ourselves. It's leaning on our own understanding and going the way of the world. It's trusting our wits, our wealth, our power, our ability to one more time overcome our limitations. You know what Solomon said in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? L listen to what he wrote. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. See, Abraham is leaning on his understanding. How am I going to do this? I'm going to figure it out. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. The famine may be around you, but God can see you through it. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit, surrender to him, and he will make your path straight. He will make your path straight. Egypt is not the answer. Egypt is not the answer. The world, the way the world is going is the wrong way. God has the answer. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Second, I think we need to recognize that prosperity is not always a sign of a great relationship with God. Now, we have to talk about this periodically because the Western church sends the wrong message with disgusting consistency. We hear people talk about faith and prosperity, and we always hear it connected to the faith of Abraham and the prosperity that God gave him. And if we have faith like Abraham had, then we'll, we, can, we will enjoy prosperity. It strikes me as most peculiar that when God blessed Abram with wealth, he was practicing no faith at all. Did you remember? 
How did he get it? He sold his wife to Pharaoh. There were no altars. There was absolutely no trust in God to take care of him in the land that he had promised to him. There was no sacrifice for the good of his family or protective measures for his wife. As, as a matter of fact, there appears to be no thought of anything other than himself. Yet, he left Egypt with a whole lot more, less faith, but more stuff than he had when he went there. What, what's the message? What we're going to see is that he was tested by that prosperity. What we're going to see is that the blessing of God, the connection with God prospers us spiritually, prospers us in relationship with him. And so whether we have a lot or a little, it's not necessarily a sign of our of a healthy relationship with God. Abraham certainly wasn't in a healthy place in Egypt. But God prospered him. God was preparing him for what he would do when Abraham got himself sorted out. The prosperity we seek that brings joy to our soul is prosperous, prospering in our relationship with God. Third, I think we need to understand that obedience opens the door for more. Every people say, you know, I don't really hear from God. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing. Well, back up a little bit and see if you've done what he told you to do to begin with. Because if you're faithful with a little bit that what he's revealed, then you'll be given more. As we're transformed by the renewing of our mind, then we're able to test and see what God's will is. The more we obey today, the more he reveals tomorrow. And finally, we learn about the call to separation. And this is not exclusive to Abram. A relationship with God, a yes to God, means a no to other things. It means we have to separate. What does saying yes to God require you to separate from? Is it an image you've cultivated? The way people know you? Saying yes to God necessarily requires that we die to self and surrender to Him and His vision for our lives. Maybe you have to separate from the way you were raised, as Abram did. Maybe you have to separate need to separate from a lifestyle that you've carved out for yourself? I, I can't tell you what it means for you. 
But if you're open to God, you're listening to his spirit, he'll tell you. Every, in, every person, every life clings to something for security, hope, that God says, let go of that. Trust me for that. And when we separate, our epic story of faith truly begins. Maybe you haven't become a follower of Jesus. You haven't placed your faith in God. For whatever reason, you're, you, you just don't trust it. You don't trust the story. You're concerned about what other people will think. Maybe you have declared yourself to be a spiritual progressive and all roads lead to heaven and, and you just can't let that go. Maybe today you need to separate from your stubborn insistence that you know the way and trust the way God has revealed. Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by him. Maybe you can't let go of some question, some frustration, some hurt in the past that is preventing you from giving your heart and soul to Jesus Christ. Maybe you need to separate from that. Here's what we know. At some point, to follow God, live in obedience to His commands, to live in His divine purpose for your life, you have to separate. Let it go. Walking with God, as it did for Abram, demands separation for us. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, we're so thankful that the father of our faith demonstrated clearly that he lived with feet of clay. Lord, we're also grateful to learn that where and when we struggle, our flesh may fail, our faith may fail, but our God, you never will. So give us faith. Father, for the one who doesn't know you today, who hasn't placed their faith and trust in Jesus, may today be the day that they separate from clinging to what keeps them from clinging to you. Grant them faith. And Lord, for your sake, for the expansion of your kingdom and for your glory, I pray for all of us, Father, that we would be able to choose obedience, that we would trust you, and we would live for your glory. It's in the strong name of Jesus, I pray.